Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to talk about the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the light of Psalm 140. Now, in the Catechism's uh, explanation of the sixth petition, the Catechism teaches us that we have three great enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, and tells us that we are praying in this petition that God will strengthen us by the power of his Holy Spirit that we may make firm stand against them and not be overcome in this spiritual warfare until finally complete victory is ours. We find this theme in Psalm 140. We are praying here that the Lord will give us strength by his Holy Spirit to stand firm against the temptations that beset us. The fact that David is dealing here particularly with temptations comes out especially in verse 4, where he says, Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The stumbling of his steps is what he is concerned about, most concerned about in this psalm. But we should also notice that in this psalm, David deals really with just one of the three enemies that the Catechism talks about. He does not speak directly of the devil, the evil one, though of course the devil's work is certainly in the background. He does not speak either of the war which he has to make against his own flesh, but he speaks of instead of the resistance which he must give to the wicked who seek to make his steps stumble. We consider the psalm under the theme of praying for deliverance from violent men, and we consider this uh, then, this psalm, using the five parts, uh, or dividing the psalm into five parts as we see it actually in uh, the uh, Pew Bibles. In verses 1 to 3, David prays for deliverance and preservation from his enemies and uh, explains in part, anyway, what they are doing to him. In verses 4 and 5, David repeats his petition for preservation and explains in more detail in the following lines what his enemies are doing to him. This is language that's entirely different from the language that you find in the first part of the psalm. Then in verses 6 to 8, David expresses his confidence in God. You have covered my head in the day of battle and makes petition to the Lord based on that confidence. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. In verses 9 to 11, David makes specific petition against his enemies. He prays for God's judgment upon them. And finally, in verses 12 and 13, David again expresses his confidence in the Lord. So we begin then with verses 1 to 3. Now let's notice, first of all, what David calls his enemies here. He calls them, first of all, evil men. And what this means, of course, from the perspective of the scriptures, is that David is placing this whole psalm into the context of the antithesis, into the context of the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. 
This is not like other warfare that may occur between nations, nor is this like a quarrel between one man and another in the, the world. But this is part of that great spiritual conflict which God himself caused to exist in the world by calling out from the seed of the serpent a seed, a seed of the woman, for himself. And these men then who are attacking David are evil men. That is, they are men whose purposes and motives against David are unlawful. What they are doing is sin. They are attacking David because he belongs to the party of God, because they hate righteousness, and because they are opposed to the rule of God in the world. That's what makes them evil. Furthermore, he talks about them as violent men. This evil which characterizes these men is not a passive wickedness not mere hatred, but is uh, a wickedness and a hatred that becomes active against David. They practice violence against him. He doesn't necessarily mean physical violence, though that may be included, but he certainly makes a point in this psalm of verbal violence. In verse 3, they sharpen their tongues like a serpent. So they practice violence against him in order to achieve their wicked desires against him. And this is David's, actually David's primary concern about these men in this psalm. Notice that three times he speaks of these violent men. First in verse 1, then again in verse 4, using the very same words he used in verse 1, preserve me from violent men. And then again in verse 11, let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. So that's David's primary concern about these wicked men. They are violent. They are seeking deliberately to destroy him, to uh, make his steps stumble, as we've already noted. noted. Now, what does he say about what they are doing then in verses 2 and 3? First of all, he says, they plan evil things in their heart. We've noticed already that they are wicked. That is, that they hate David and attack him unlawfully. We've noticed that this wickedness is active. It's not a passive kind of wickedness where they're satisfied simply to hate him and then leave him alone. They want to do harm to him. But now we have to notice that their wickedness is also deliberate. They plan evil things in their heart. This is not casual wickedness. This is not wickedness done on the spur of the moment as they see an opportunity arise for them to do him some harm. But this is these men thinking in their hearts, planning in their hearts, what kinds of evil they may do to him. They have a strong desire, therefore, for his injury. In addition, David says, they continually gather together for war. Now, perhaps a somewhat better translation of this would be that they continually stir up wars. They continually stir up wars. 
That is, on the one hand, they're planning evil in their hearts. This is a a private and individual sort of thing that we get a picture of here in the beginning of verse 2. But having planned this evil, then they seek to incite others against David. They stir up wars against him. They want to get at him, not only by their own wickedness, but they want to stir up many others to be enemies of David as well. They are continually stirring up wars against him. And finally, the way that they stir up these wars is that they use their tongues. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps is under their lips. This is, of course, a concern that we see over and over again in the Psalms. There's a whole series of Psalms earlier in the book in which David is deeply concerned about his enemies' use of their tongues against him. You find those Psalms beginning in Psalm 52. Psalm 52, which is a Psalm uh, about the time that Doeg the Edomite went and told Saul and said to him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So he's thinking particularly about Doeg. And he says of Doeg in verse 4, You love all devouring words, you deceitful tongue. And also in verse 2, Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor working deceitfully. In Psalm 55, another psalm of David, we have him using the same kind of language, verse 21, about his enemies' use of their tongues. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. In Psalm 58, verse 4, again, their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears. And in Psalm 59, verse 7, Indeed, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? So David had this Uh, significant concern about the verbal attacks that his enemies made on him. Sometimes they brought these verbal attacks directly against him to his face. Uh, Other times they uh, did this behind his back. There were those, uh, for example, like Doeg the Edomite, who, who stirred up Saul against David and against David's friends. There were those who uh, were of the party of Saul who sought to undermine David. And after, even after David uh, uh, became king of all Israel, when Saul and his house were finished, there were many who spoke against David, Absalom, his own son, being one of them. This is the kind of thing that David is talking about. Absalom was implicitly in accusing his father David of not administering proper justice to the people of Israel. So you have all these different ways in which his enemies are attacking him verbally, stirring up war against him, sharpening their tongues like serpents, and showing that there is the poison of asps under their lips. When he compares these enemies to serpents, of course, he is speaking, first of all, of their subtlety. The serpent was more subtle than any other beast of the field. But he's also speaking of their malice. They are filled with malice against him. They desire very strongly his injury, and they seek that injury with all their um, resources. 
And David then, in response to these attacks of his enemies, prays for first deliverance. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. And secondly, for preservation. On the one hand, he says, rescue me from them. Don't leave me in their hands. And and on the other hand, he says, while their attacks continue, do not let those attacks be successful. Preserve me from them. Now David picks up that prayer of preservation again in verse 4 and repeats it. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men. He uses one more descriptive term for his enemies in verse 5. He calls them the proud. The proud have hidden a snare for me. And what he means by this, of course, is that he himself is a poor and afflicted man. But he is also, as a poor and afflicted man, one of the uh, anointeds of the Lord. And these men have dared, in their uh, speaking against him, in their planning war against him, in their uh, plotting of evil, to speak against and to attack the anointed of the Lord. They are exalting themselves, therefore, against one whom the Lord has set in a high place over his people. And they dare then not only to exalt themselves against the Lord's anointed, but they dare to exalt themselves against the Lord who anointed that one. They are proud. Proud in thinking that they can resist the Lord and can resist his anointed. But now notice also how David talks about what they are doing to him. He talks more specifically about the plans which they have made at the end of verse 4. They have purposed, he said, to make my steps stumble. So David's very precise in identifying the purpose of these enemies. And the purpose of these enemies is not in the first place to take his life. But the purpose of these enemies is to make him stumble in his godly walk. They want to tempt him by their persecution to sin. That's their purpose. They want his steps to stumble. David uses this kind of language in other Psalms as well. In Psalm 17, for example, verse 5, Psalm 17, verse 5, where he makes it very clear that this is a matter of walking in the ways of the Lord. Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. And in Psalm 119, verse 133, to give just One more example, 119, verse 133. Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. So the the purpose of these men is very clear, very sharp. They have it very well defined in their own minds. Their first intent is not to kill him, but to make him sin. They want his steps 
to stumble. That's what makes this psalm appropriate to consider in connection with that sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. These enemies purpose to make his steps stumble. And so when David prays, keep me and preserve me, he is saying, do not let me fall into the temptations with which they are besetting me. He also then talks about what they have done in verse 5. And here he talks in terms of a hunter who is seeking to trap birds or other animals. They have hidden a snare for me and cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. So all along the way which David is walking, the righteous way that David is walking, they are trying to find ways to draw him away from that path or to drive him away from that path into ways of sin. They are like hunters seeking to ensnare animals. And if you put this all together then, I think what you see is David uses three different metaphors for his enemies here. He doesn't use just one consistent metaphor throughout, but three different metaphors. In the first place, he compares them to an army, an army that's attacking him. They are continually gathered together for war. In the second place, he compares them to serpents and their subtlety and their malice and their desire to injure him. And finally, he compares them to hunters who want to trap him. So in all these ways, David is pressed by these enemies and pressed by these enemies towards sin. And he prays then throughout this first part of the psalm for the Lord to deliver him and preserve him from falling into those temptations which the wicked are setting before him. I think we may say, that David is not here as hard-pressed as he was, for example, in Psalm 143, which we considered uh, not so long ago. He says there in Psalm 143, the enemy has persecuted my soul, he has crushed my life to the ground, he has made me dwell in darkness like those who have long been dead. Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me, My heart within me is distressed. So David is in dire circumstances there in Psalm 143. We don't see how that that kind of extreme trouble here in Psalm 140. But nevertheless, he's hard-pressed by these enemies. They have beset him, and they have beset him with many temptations, all kinds of temptations to depart from evil. And I think we may say David has not yet fallen, He has not yet fallen into the temptations, but he is nevertheless afraid of falling. And he prays urgently to the Lord, therefore, to deliver him from them. And in this, we may compare him to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was himself thus beset by his enemies. We read that in Luke chapter 11, verses 53 and 54, as Jesus condemned the Pharisees and the lawyers. 
We read that the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. And of course, they often came to tempt him during his earthly life, to tempt him into some sinful word, some rebellious word against the word of God. And we see it even when he was hanging on the cross. If you are the Christ, come down from the cross. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. The enemies of Jesus, even when he was suffering his worst, would not leave him alone, but constantly pressed him with their temptations. And this is our prayer, people of God, whenever we are persecuted for righteousness sake and these persecutions become to us sources of temptation to us we pray to god keep me o lord do not let them succeed in making me stumble we there are many people of god in fact in the world today who are undergoing exactly the kind of tribulation and affliction that david talks about here they are put in prison They are robbed of their jobs. They are separated from their families. They are driven from place to place. And in all of these things, of course, the enemy is saying to them, only join us and everything will be okay. Deny the Lord and we will be happy. That's the point of these temptations which these enemies are bringing to David. Just deny your God. Just walk with us. Just join the world. Just be like us. And everything will be fine. We will leave you alone. They purpose to make our steps stumble. And our response to them is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We turn then to verses 6 to 8, the third part of the psalm. And here is why, of course, we have to say that David is not as hard-pressed as he was in Psalm 143. You do not find these expressions of confidence in Psalm 143. But here he says, I said to the Lord, you are my God. Now, notice David is confessing his faith there. And in the preparation of this psalm and in the uh, singing of this psalm, that faith is being confessed to before the world. He's responding to the world's temptations, therefore, by saying, the Lord is my God. That's his response to them. But, he says here, I am also making this confession of faith before the Lord. I said to the Lord, you are my God. And that is his expression of confidence. The Lord has spoken his promise to David. I will be your God. And David has taken hold of that promise of the Lord and has said, you are my God. 
The whole point is then, not that David has chosen the Lord to be his God, but that David is confessing that the Lord has chosen him and has become his God. You are my God because of the promise you made to me. I will be your God. And he is reminding the Lord, therefore, of that promise. And he is saying to the Lord, I believe that promise. You are indeed my God. Therefore, I have confidence that you will help me in my present circumstances. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. It is that request to be heard is rooted in his confidence in the Lord as his God. And that makes it different in a certain respect from Psalm 143, verse 1, where he says, Give ear to my supplications. That's a cry of desperation, isn't it? A cry that comes even from a lack of persuasion that the Lord is really with him. His heart is overwhelmed and his spirit is failing him in that psalm. But here his, this prayer is rooted in that confidence that the Lord is his God. Hear the voice of my supplications. And he says then, O God the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. First of all, notice the names he uses there. Yahweh the Lord. And what he means by that in the first place is that this is the eternal, unchangeable, self-sufficient God, Yahweh. The one who is infinite in power, infinite in glory who reveals himself in his word and in his works as the God of gods and the king of kings and he is the Lord that is he is the one who owns heaven and earth and all that is in them including David's enemies and is master of them but he is Yahweh the Lord to David in a very special way because he is Yahweh the Lord the unchangeable covenant God to David, and he is Yahweh the Lord as David's master who has purchased him with the blood of his son and has made him his own in that very particular and special way, and he has become the Lord's servant. And he says of him, you are the strength of my salvation. Now that means, of course, that the Lord is his Savior. That's the first thing that's in there. The Lord is his Savior. The Lord is his Savior from his enemies. The Lord is his Savior from sin and from temptation. But he calls him the strength of his salvation. And that's very important, I think. He means more than that the Lord is his Savior here. He means that the Lord is the one who defends and preserves the salvation he has given him. The Lord is the one who has give, set that salvation around David like an impregnable fortress, who has made that salvation strong and enduring against the attacks of the enemies. You see how strong a confession he's making. You are the strength of my salvation. You are the one who is a wall around me, and a wall through which my enemies cannot come, a wall against which my enemies exhaust their resources in vain. My salvation is strong and secure because you stand as my Savior and as the strength 
of my salvation. And then he goes on to say, you have covered my head in the day of battle. He's using again that metaphor of war and what he's saying here basically is that the Lord has put a helmet on his head. A helmet that defends him from all the attacks of his enemies. He has given him the helmet of salvation as Paul calls it in Ephesians chapter 6. This is what the Lord has done, David says. And he has then full confidence that the Lord will indeed preserve him from his enemies and keep him from falling into sin, keep his steps from stumbling. And then again, it's in in the uh, confidence that he has in the Lord that David asks the next thing from the Lord. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked schemes. Their desire is to make his steps stumble. Their schemes are to make war against him, to present him with every possible temptation, to set traps by the way, all along the way, wherever they have opportunity, in order to make those steps stumble. David says to the Lord in the full confidence that the Lord is the strength of his salvation, don't grant their desires. Don't further their wicked schemes. So that's the third part of the psalm. A confidence in the Lord in the day of battle. Now the last part of verse 8, lest they be exalted, you will find is uh, placed differently, is associated with verse 9 in the NIV and in the Revised Standard Version. It can be taken either way, and perhaps the word sila indicates that it should be taken with verse 8, but those two translations take it with verse 9. And they take it with verse 9 by translating in this way, when those who surround me lift up or exalt their heads, let the evil of their lips cover them. You see that? They take that word exalt and they say, when they, those who surround me exalt their heads or lift up their heads, let the evil of their lips cover them. If it belongs with verse 8, it means, of course, it refers again to their pride, to their lifting themselves up against David. They exalt themselves against David and against the Lord. But if it belongs with verse 9, then uh, you have this idea that they are lifting up their heads or exalting their heads. That is, they have made their plans now, They've thought through everything they want to do to David. They have everything in place. All the pieces are in place. And they're ready to execute their plans. They are lifting their heads in order to carry out what they have intended against him. He says of these enemies that they are surrounding him. They are, there are many enemies then and they are on all sides of him. 
all around him, pressing in on him from all these different directions and in all these different ways. But now notice how David prays against them. His prayer is very precisely thought out again. He has said in verse 7, you have covered my head in the day of battle. He says about the heads of the wicked here in verse 9, don't cover them. It's implicit anyway. Don't cover their heads. Don't provide them with salvation. Instead, expose their heads to the evil that their lips have spoken. And of course, when he talks about the evil their lips have spoken, he's going back to verse 3 where he complained about them sharpening their tongues like a serpent. They have plotted evil against him. They have spoken evil against him. They have, by their words, incited evil against him. And he says, let that evil which they planned and which they talked and which they incited come on their own unprotected heads. He's praying then for judgment on his enemies. And he's praying for that specific judgment, which is the return of the evil they thought to do to him on themselves. He also prays for their final destruction. I think that's the idea of verse nine, uh, verse 10. Their final destruction. Let for burning coals fall upon them. This is a recalling of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment that God brought on them when he rained fire and brimstone upon them and destroyed them completely. It is what David says about the wicked in Psalm 11 as well. If you turn back to Psalm 11, David uses the same kind of language there. Verse um, 6, upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. You can find it in Psalm 18 as well, or in Jude, the, uh, the letter of Jude, this figure. And it's a figure for final, complete destruction. He wants burning coals, fire, and deep pits. Deep pits from which they cannot come out. Let them be cast into the fire, into deep pits, that they rise not up again. So he seeks the destruction of his enemies, and this is a part of his asking for deliverance from them. You cannot pray for deliverance from your enemies without at the same time praying that the Lord will destroy those enemies. It's implicit in every prayer for deliverance from our enemies. In verse 11, we have a little bit of a different uh, approach. David here is, is praying for himself, but notice how he expands the scope of his prayer from his own enemies, those specific enemies, to all slanderers and to all violent men. He's not specific in this petition as he is in verses 9 and 10. And he doesn't limit this petition to those enemies who are attacking him. Let not a slanderer, or uh, more literally, according to the Hebrew, let not a man of tongue be established in the earth. 
And his point is this, that he's concerned not just for himself, but as the anointed of God and as the king over God's people, as well as just a member of the people of God, he is concerned about the enemy's intentions for them as well as for himself. These enemies are not attacking just him, but they are attacking also the people of God at all places and in all times. And he says of these men of tongue, these men who abuse their tongues by using them against the righteous, he says, do not let them be established in the earth. That is, don't ever give to them firm ground to stand on. Don't ever let them prosper here in the world. Always be after them in such a way as to make them be suffering judgment and evil and to be uh, pressed by you with the warnings and with the condemnations of your word. In fact, of course, it's this often that makes the wicked hate the righteous because they are the channel through which the rebukes and admonitions and condemnations of the Lord come to them. And so what he's saying is let them always be pursued. Let the angel of the Lord pursue them. Let the angel of the Lord hunt them. Let the Lord always be after them and after them and after them so that they never have peace, so that they never can say, I am now firmly established. Let evil hunt the violent man until he is overthrown. And again, this is not just about his own enemies, but it's about the enemies of righteousness in the whole world. So he prays for judgment on his enemies. And the catechism also suggests this, at least, in the last part of the Lord's Day, strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may make firm stand against them and not be overcome in this spiritual warfare until finally complete victory is ours. This is the context of warfare that David is talking about. This war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the war comes to an end when the seed of the woman achieves victory and the seed of the serpent is destroyed in everlasting fire. Finally then, David ends the psalm with another confession of confidence in the Lord. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. He is one of the afflicted, one of the poor, but again, his prayer goes beyond himself to all the people of God. He changes the metaphor again, too. It's not the metaphor of war. It's not the metaphor of one confronted by a poisonous snake. It's not the metaphor of one trying to escape from the hunters. But it's the metaphor of one who is accused before the judge and who is seeking to defend himself uh, before that judge. But the judge in this case is the Lord, of whom he has said, You are my God. You are the strength of my salvation. And he says of that judge, 
who is also his advocate in this trial. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. He will render justice to me. The attacks of my enemies are unjust, unrighteous, impious, ungodly, unlawful. The Lord will certainly condemn the wicked and uphold the afflicted and the poor. And they will therefore, because of the defense of the Lord, they will stand as the righteous. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. It is the righteous who will give thanks to his name. This is uh, David's confidence then. He says in the midst of his temptations, the righteous will give thanks to your name. And they will give thanks to your name because you will maintain their cause. You will hear their prayers. You will be to them their God. You will be to them the strength of their salvation. And surely too then they will dwell in your presence forever. It's a warfare then between the righteous and the wicked in which the righteous are sorely tempted They cry to the Lord, save me from those who seek to make my steps stumble. And the prayer of faith, people of God, the prayer of faith is the means of our salvation. The instrument by which God gives to us that salvation which is in our righteous Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered all that we suffered and who conquered our enemies has gone to glory to accomplish the fullness of our salvation from the right hand of his Father. May God bless the proclamation of his word.